are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Hello and welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast from Classco Immigration Law Partners. My name is Steve Miller and I'm here with Classco Associates Fager Grundman and Lisa Felix. Today we're going to be talking about the backlog currently affecting the EB1 and EB2 categories of employment-based visas and uh, how that's going to impact strategies for filing for people from countries all over the world. Before we really dive in, I think we should present some uh, terms we're going to be using throughout this podcast and provide a little context for what we're going to be talking about. So, Lisa, why don't you um, break down some of the uh, words and phrases we're going to be using throughout to make this a little bit more clear to understand. Okay, thank you. Um, well, first of all, you should realize that um, employment-based preferences are talking about permanent residence, and with any permanent residence or green card application that's going to be filed, there are basically, uh, there's an, a qualification phase, which is for employment-based petitions, an I-140. For family-based petitions, it's an I-130. And then the second phase is the adjustment of status or the, um, the immigrant visa. So uh, what we're talking about now are the quotas and the timelines and the categories for filing that second or last part of the green card process, the adjustment of status or immigrant visa. So the um, immigration regulations set out 140,000 spots available for permanent residents to be granted in any fiscal year. And within that number, there are certain uh, quantities devoted to different preference categories So um, that's what EB1 means, employment-based first preference, EB2, employment-based second preference, and so on. And then within each preference category, each country gets the same amount. So when uh, um, a, a, a country's quota fills up, then that country will go into what we call a backlog situation and there will be a delay. You can't always file the adjustment of status application if your quota for that fiscal year for that country is backlogged. So now we'll, we'll talk about um, the current situation and a little bit about the recent history. So, of course, when we talk about the EB1 category, the first preference, um, we think of it in terms of people who are at the tops of their respective fields. These are people who are so desired by our country to stay in the United States that, you know, even the Department of Labor is not concerned about their impact on the local labor market. They're just so good at what they do. So colloquially, we think of this as the best and the brightest. And it can be best and brightest in any number of different fields. So that typically is the fastest way to get a green card. And you know, particularly for nationals of certain countries that may face backlogs of five or more years, it's been for the last decade or more the category that's never had a backlog. So when Indian and Chinese nationals, for example, are looking at five 
plus years of waiting between the time of getting an immigrant petition and even being able to file to ask for a green card when it comes to the second and third preference categories. The first preference category has basically always been available to file both of these filings at the same time. So in the middle of March, when the Department of State announced the April Visa Bulletin, which basically outlines what kind of movement there is across different family and employment-based categories, there was a bit of a shock where we saw that the rug for EB1 Chinese and Indian hopefuls had been pulled back quite a bit. Um, And in part, this has been because of a new requirement under this administration as part of, I guess, extreme vetting, where every employment-based immigrant hopeful has to attend an in-person interview at a local USCIS sub-office. And so this has added a lot of strain on local USCIS workloads, and they've not gotten additional resources. And then there's a delay reporting back to the Department of State what visas are actually used, Um, so how many green cards are left. And the numbers that we mentioned, the 140,000 that's available, that's the primary beneficiary and each family member. So if you have someone who's got a spouse and six children, that's eight numbers that's been used up from that total. Um, If it's just a single person, then just one. So each person has to go for an interview, and we actually see babies get interview notices too, although don't always actually need to go. But, you know, we want to make sure that we have vetted all of the security. Um, And so there's this additional administrative process at the local USCIS sub-office, then they report back to the Department of State, and then they say, okay, this is how many we have used. And so this created a overuse for Indian and Chinese nationals of the EB-1 category. So the Department of State had to put on the brakes and said, oops, we accidentally used up an entire year's worth of green cards for Indian and Chinese best and brightest people before April. And so there was a a huge rush of people trying to get their paperwork in just to try and get it pending. Um, One of the primary benefits for being able to file an adjustment of status application is work authorization for dependents. That could be children, that could be spouses. Most other statuses don't allow spouses to work, um, even with a separate application. And the ones that do allow spouse work authorization through a separate application don't have work authorization for children. So, and that could get complicated when you have someone who's 16, 18, 19 years old and wants to, you know, work or a babysitter or do those things. The other primary benefit is the job flexibility. So at some point when someone's in the green card process, they can change employers. But other than that, there's typically a tie where if a position location employer changes, then they have to start the green card process over. So, you know, filing the adjustment of status application is is a really big benefit. Actually, I'd like to add another benefit is the um, advanced parole Um, ability to travel without a visa stamp. And um, depending on the country and how difficult it is to obtain a visa stamp, such as a non-immigrant H-1B visa stamp, for example, um, it can be a significant advantage to be able to travel without needing to go to an embassy, apply for a visa stamp, wait for that to be processed. 
um, before you can come back. That's a really good point. And there's reciprocity limits on nationals of certain countries where instead of getting a full duration visa stamp, they may only get a visa stamp for three months instead of three years. And they might be a person who gets put in administrative processing by the consulate every time they apply. And they may get stranded for months at a time. So that is a really big benefit, not having to get a visa stamp anymore. So at the time, we were hoping that this, like in a couple of past years, would resolve by October 1. Um, As it got further in the year, there was another announcement for the Department of State around mid-July that actually all of the EB-1 best and brightest categories would retrogress as of um, August. August Yeah, so August 1st. And that was another big push to try and get some paperwork in. Um, And at that point, we thought, all right, well, you know, October 1, things should kind of clear up a bit. And even the Department of State projections at that point were that there would be some some forward movement. Um, But then came August, and in that month, we learned that the retrogression, the backlog, would continue at least until the end of the calendar year to some extent for everyone, um, no matter where they're from. So let's take a step back for a minute and talk about the Visa Bulletin itself, what it is, what information it conveys. So uh, uh, would you guys like to talk a little bit about what we look for each time the Visa Bulletin comes out every month? Sure. Uh, The Visa Bulletin is a document that's issued by the State Department every month, and it sets forth what the availability is for the next, for the upcoming month on uh, filing that last stage of the green card application. So in about, uh, in the middle of the month, so for right now, um, for example, around September 12th, 13th, the visa bulletin for October 2018 was issued. And at that time, we were uh, informed about who and when Uh, can progress to the last stage of the green card application. So within the visa bulletin, there's a chart, and it identifies the preference category, employment-based first, second, third, and it breaks down by country where applicable. So right now, because um, the large countries uh, have used up their quota and are into backlog, um, countries like China, India, and Mexico, um, who send a lot of immigrants to the United States, those countries are listed separately, and all the rest of the countries are listed in one ch- one column called All Chargeability Areas. So within that uh, chart, there's a priority date, and the priority date establishes uh, the date before which a green card, ha- green card application has to have achieved a qualifying step, and if so, those people can progress to the last step of the green card. So if your priority date is before the date listed on the chart, you can progress to the last step. If your date is after the date announced, you have to wait until a future month. So the way I think of this is um, it's like going to a deli counter or going to the DMV where you have to take a ticket and wait to be served. You wait for your number to be called. And so the priority date, that's the ticket. So that is the date. That's the number that gets called. The Department of State, this is like the visa bulletin is the announcement. It's like that now serving, you know, (laughs) this person, this number. And then it's broken out in separate lines. 
Um, so, you know, there might be some lines that are moving faster than others and some lines that are very, very slow. So we mentioned charts in the Visa Bulletin. Uh, for the employment-based preference categories, there are actually two charts. So why don't we talk about the differences between the two and when we rely on one over the other? Yeah, so it was confusing enough, um, and I spent many years with my analogy to the TMV, which, you know, was already, I guess, somewhat relatable. But now at this point, we've got two charts for families, family-based immigration, and we have two charts for employment-based immigration. And one is the final action date, and one is the dates for filing. So if you rewind back to 2014 when President Obama announced that there were going to be some changes to immigration policy, this was part of where there was an announcement for additional border resources to Customs and Border Protection, um, the Deferred Action for Parental Accountability, or DAPA, which unfortunately never got off the ground, the Entrepreneurial Parole, which still mystifies me, um, and some other things, including the, the extension of having the ability to file, or what President Obama said, it was long lines of pre-file, for these adjustment benefits that we mentioned. So even though there's not a green card that is available immediately, being able to have some of that job flexibility, having spousal and child work authorization, and um, the advanced parole travel document. So I remember, you know, watching this announcement with bated breath, thinking this would be super, super exciting. And then at the end thinking, huh? And so, so I was like, well, how do you pre-file for a green card? What does that even mean? So you take that, that order, that policy, and this is, I guess, what the Department of State came up with. So the family base, the employment base, they each have two charts. There's final dates, which is when the cases are actually adjudicated, and there is dates for filing. But there's a catch. Every month, the Department of State has a link in the Visa Bulletin where you have to click and see, can you actually use these charts? So there's the final action date. You can always use that. So if there is an immediately available green card in your category, you can go ahead and file. But then there's this dates for filing that's just hanging tantalizingly and teasingly. And, you know, people are thinking, well, I have a date. It's the date for filing. But then you click on the link every month from USCIS and it says, just kidding, you have to use the final action dates for employment-based categories. And as far as I remember, that has been the case since this started. So this was, you know, I remember people complaining about Obama and dictatorial power and how this was outrageous and thinking that this is one of the manifestations of what that was, was we got a second chart that we couldn't use for employment-based green cards and thinking, I don't, I don't think they actually know what, what came of that. So, but we do have an interesting situation starting in October where for the first time that I can recall, employment-based candidates can use the dates for filing. So, um, Let's hear what we're looking forward to in October. So if you look on the Visa Bulletin and you scroll down to the dates for filing for of employment-based visa applications, you'll see the chart listed under that section header. And uh, with employment-based first preference, you'll see uh, certain countries listed out separately, as I said. So for example, China. And I, I should... Uh, point out that this pertains to where a person is born. 
not where they're a citizen. And it also, uh, if the person is married, you can um, use a provision called cross-chargeability and use the country of birth of your spouse. So if you were born in China or India, countries that are uh, usually or frequently backlogged because they have so many, such a large population, uh, but your spouse is born in another country, you can take advantage of the birthplace of your spouse. And again, it's the birthplace, not the citizenship. Um, and potentially use a different priority date. Um, so for example, right now, for the month of October 2018, uh, the priority date for China mainland born is October 1st, 2017. That means that if you've reached this qualifi qualifying stage in your green card process before October 1st, 2017, you've received your ticket, as Vega mentioned, and you can now proceed to filing your adjustment of status application or your consular process could, uh, could be filed. The uh, India priority date for October 2018 is also October 1st, 2017. And then all chargeability areas except those listed separately uh, is June 1st, 2018. The other countries which are listed separately are El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Mexico, and the Philippines. So any country other than China, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, India, Mexico, or the Philippines comes under all chargeability areas and has a relatively short wait time, but there still is a wait. Yeah, and, and interesting that in this particular month, the all chargeability number is the same for everybody except for Chinese um, mainland-born individuals and Indian nationals. So... Um, so here we have October 1. This is the beginning of the fiscal year, and this is what we're looking at, where we are starting the year off with a backlog for everybody of at least some amount. Um, the predictions from the Department of State in midsummer were that this would probably have some forward motion, but expecting to have at least some kind of backlog for everybody for at least the rest of the calendar year. Um, there were no specific comments about Indian and Chinese nationals, but my guess is that this will probably still be um, backlogged beyond the end of this calendar year. And based on this additional burden of having these interviews at the local offices and then the delay of reporting that back to the Department of State so that they can see how many visa numbers they've been using, I think the Department of State is likely to kind of ration it out by quarter so that they say, all right, we're going to let through 25% of this country's allotment and then see how it goes so that they don't end up in a situation like they did earlier in April 2018 where they had really overused and not known about it ahead of time. So um, interestingly enough, we think of the different categories. It's kind of like first, second, and third, and it's... It's preference, so it translates pretty much linearly, like first is what you think of as the people that the country most wants, second would be the next best, and then third would be the next best. Um, the second and third priority dates for all chargeability countries, other than those that are fleshed out in the chart, is current, meaning that if you are in these lower priority categories for the month of October, you can file your green card, but if you are a best and the brightest, 
let's say, cancer researcher, you cannot file for a green card, which is sort of counterintuitive. Um, uh, to that end, then, why don't we talk about some possible strategies for filing over the next few months for people who are looking at filing EB1s or possibly EB2 petitions? So one strategy is to file in more than one preference category. For example, if you're preparing an outstanding researcher petition or an extraordinary ability self-petition, you may also want to prepare a national interest waiver petition, which can be a self-petition. Uh, you would file that separately, but the national interest waiver petition is an EB2, which for October 2018 is current for um certain countries, like the all-chargeability all areas in El Salvador, Mexico, and the Philippines, whereas that uh, same petition, if filed as an extraordinary ability petition or an outstanding researcher petition, EB1, would be backlogged. So you'd have to wait to file your adjustment of status if you were only filing the EB1 petition, but if you add a second petition, a national interest waiver, for example, you may at that time file the adjustment of status with the National Interest Waiver Petition. Of course, that results in additional expense, but um, you can kind of do a cost-benefit analysis, and if you can receive your work authorization, you might make up for the added cost, or you know, the ability to travel might be a, a distinct advantage that you're willing to spend um, the extra money on the second petition. Yeah, so you're, you'll pay that I-140 filing fee twice of $700, and it may seem like, you know, the different categories, national interest versus extraordinary or outstanding, that are, they're pretty different, but as we talked about in one of our earlier podcast episodes, um, there may be more overlap to them than you think, and you may be able to reuse a lot of those materials um, for both of those filings, so it may be more accessible. One of the other things I've been doing with foreign nationals who are born in countries other than China and India is filing an adjustment of status with the National Interest Waiver, the EB2 Second Preference National Interest Waiver, I-140. And these may be, in some of the, the cases that we filed you know, just recently, people who are just unquestioningly brilliant top minds of the world. And here I come saying, hey guys, let's think about filing another immigrant petition in a lower preference category because you're probably going to get your green card faster doing it that way. Um, or even if you don't, at least you'll get the other benefits, the work authorization, the possible portability and the travel. And so that's been something that a lot of people have made use of. Um, and then the other inevitable question is, well, what happens if the EB1 category starts moving faster again? Because usually that's the way it goes. Usually if there's a backlog, it's not in the EB1 category. Um, and the answer is you're always going to file one I-45 per person. If you file more than one, it's very, very confusing to USCIS. Um, that used to be one of the reasons why they would call people in for an interview for employment-based cases. It's very confusing. Nowadays, they're going to call everyone in anyway, but you only file one. But you have the option of doing what's called inter-filing. One of the things that people ask about is whether they should wait until their priority date becomes current and file the green card application, that I-485 adjustment, with the I-140. And there are some pluses and minuses to different approaches, um, but for the most part, we've been just moving forward with I-140s. The problem with waiting is that we don't have visibility 
into more than, say, a month in the future from the Department of State Visa Bulletin. And although sometimes we get some predictions further in advance than that, we see from at least earlier this year that's not always accurate because we were expecting it to look differently um, when we got some reports in March and in April. And the, the other thing is that we see on the final action dates, which those are the dates for the cases that are being adjudicated, those are starting to creep up. So the all-chargeability areas for other than the ones that are, you know, spread out to the side of the chart, we have a priority date of April 1, 2017, which means that if you had filed a green card early in the year, it has been sitting and not getting looked at, but they're going to start picking up those cases that were filed, or if you haven't filed, you can file them already. Um, similarly, for China and India, we've got um, June 1st, 2016, so they are moving that forward. The initial backlog was back to 2012, so they really yanked that back. Um, the, the issue with filing the adjustment later is that now there is a new form I-485 Supplement J. Um, it's not super new, but you'd say within the last year or so. And when you file an adjustment of status separate from the I-140, you have to file it with this form. So there's um, requests for evidence for people who have had long pending adjustments where when they pick it up again, the USCIS wants to say, hey guys, I just want to make sure that you're still working in the job that you said you were working or something else that you were allowed to be doing. Um, and there's now this this request for evidence where they may ask for an I-485J, there's a proactive requirement for job changing that you file it proactively. Um, and now if you file the adjustment of status individually, separate from the I-140, you're going to include that. And we feel like given the projections of some type of backlog for the rest of the year, it's worth it for everybody to get in line at the Department of State um, by filing an I-140 and then following it with a 45, even if it means adding this other form to it. There's no additional filing fee to do that. So, so what do you think? Um, what do we want, think is coming down through the rest of the year? Do you have a crystal ball? Well, um, I think what we have been hearing is that EB2 will remain current uh, for all chargeability areas. And we do expect to see continued forward movement in the EB1 China and India categories. And um, hopefully EB1 all chargeability areas will become current. So um, while we don't necessarily expect China and India to actually become current, uh, the all chargeability areas, we do expect that to become current within a few months here or there. And that, that is something that's hard to know. I mean, we may be looking at the new normal for China and India in this um, first preference category. So if you are a brilliant scientist who happens to have been born in one of those countries, um, you will possibly be waiting longer than previous years. But as Vegas said, um, that, well, there is no quota on filing the I-140. And filing the I-140 gives you a priority date. And as you can see from the charts, the earlier your priority date, the, the better, um, the faster you can move to your I-485 stage. So that might be one um, strategy that you really consider. 
And something else to think about, you were mentioning this earlier, Lisa, um, you may want to move ahead with a second preference, even if you're from a country where those are typically backlogged, at least a little bit, like China and India, because of what we we refer to as retention of a priority date. So once you take that ticket in line for the Department of State to be served for your green card, you can use that same ticket and go to a different line. Um, and that could be either through interfiling or that can be through filing another I-140 at a later date. Yeah, we do have a lot of clients that um, they maybe they're too early in their career to reasonably um, be qualified for an uh, extraordinary ability petition, but they might have a pretty good qualifications for a national interest waiver. So they file their national interest waiver now, and then um, when the when their career progresses, um, they now move into a, a, a stage where they're probably eligible for an EB-1 petition, and then they file a new I-140 under EB-1 and can retain their priority date from their national interest waiver filed earlier in their career. Maybe for a future podcast, we can talk about, you know, why not just try to file for the EB-1 and see what happens, what would be the upsides or downsides of that if you're early in your career. That's a great idea, Fega. Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lisa, Fega, thank you for joining us today and for offering some insight into what is a confusing and uncertain situation. Uh, To you listening, thank you for listening. This has once again been Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast from Classical Immigration Law Partners. Please feel free to rate and uh, review us wherever you find your podcasts. It really helps other people find us as well. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.